All right. Well, let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, God. And Lord, we thank you so much, uh, Lord, that you are worthy. God, we thank you so much, um, Lord, that you have opened up our eyes to who you are. God, that you opened up our eyes to our sin. Lord, you opened up our eyes to to see our need of you, God. And I thank you so much for that. God, I thank you so much, um, Lord, just for who you are. God, I thank you so much, um, Lord, that you're with us in the, in the mountaintops and in the valleys. God, I thank you um, that you're with us everywhere that we go. God, that you're with us in, in the greatest moments of our lives. And God, that you're right there with us even in the hardest moments. And Lord, I just... Lord, just thank you for being here with us this morning. God, it's so beautiful to be able to just gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ and just to be able to worship you, God, and just to give you the praise that you were due, God. And I thank you so much for this week, God, just being able to go, um, Lord, to some of our schools as they're getting ready to start. And Lord, just to be able to pray for them, God, as they get ready for new school years, God, with students coming in, with teachers preparing, God, I thank you so much for that. And Lord, I just thank you for this summer, God, that we've had with our youth. Lord, just being able to go on so many different trips, and Lord, just being able to just spend so much time with them. God, seeing you move inside of all of their lives. Um, and Lord, we just thank you so much. And Lord, we're so excited about what this new school year brings. But God, knowing too that when the challenges come to, that you're right there with us. Um, and so Lord, I just pray that you would just be with us now. God, I pray for everybody that's here this morning, Lord, as we all come in with different things going on inside of our lives. God, I just pray that we can just lay all those things down at your feet right now. That as we get ready to hear the word, that, Lord, it would just encourage us. Lord, that it would just point our eyes back to you because, God, so often that's what we need because when times get tough, Lord, that's the first thing that we do is we start to look away. We look to ourselves. We look to other things to try to help with our um, lives. But, God, I just pray that, Lord, just through the preaching of your word, God, that we would just look to you for all things. Lord, for our joy, for our peace, for our contentment, for our satisfaction, Lord, all things, for our rescue, for our salvation. Um, and so, Lord, I just pray that you would just be with Tim now as he gets ready to come and to speak. God, just speak through him. God, and I just pray that your word would just ring clear in all of our hearts. And so, Lord, we just love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here with us this morning. Uh, this is a big Sunday because it's the last Sunday that we'll be here in this room for Sunday morning worship. And um, so next week, uh, you'll need to come at 1030, which you came at 1030. But recognize that next week we'll be um, gathering in the sanctuary in the front building. And there's actually people in this room that have never been in that building for worship, which is really cool. But um, eight months ago, we used to worship in a different place, and we'll be back there next week, and we want to continue to remind you, um, there will be only one service next week, and that will be the plan going forward, 1030 worship in the sanctuary, come through the front glass doors in the first building there, and uh, you'll see where to go if you've never been there before. I'd invite you to be there early. It's going to be a big service. Uh, we will have some name tags. Uh, we have, we'll have name tag tables set up. We want you to grab a name tag because... Um, as we've had new people come in over the last few months um, in different services, and uh, not everybody's been attending as regularly, we, you're going to see some faces that you don't recognize, and that's a really good thing. So um, grab a name tag on your way in next week, get here early, get you a seat early. If you've been here for 20 years and always sat in the same spot until the last eight months, this was your shakeup. So don't just go back to the same spot when we get in there um, next week. Uh, feel free to Meet some new people, sit around some new people. Um, next week, we'll, we will have baptisms in service. We'll be doing four baptisms. There's still an opportunity to do more. We've got some others that are going to come up. And we'll do another baptism service in September. And so if you are at all interested in being baptized next week, there's still a chance to do it. Just let me know after the service today, and we can talk about it. Or if September works better, we can talk about it um, in the next couple weeks, and we can get something set up for September. We do have information sheets still on baptism um, on the tables here and, and out here in the lobby and in the gymnasium, um, as if you are just looking for information about baptism. And I preached a sermon on it two weeks ago. Um, I'll also let you know, um, as we um, get into the new school year and 
timing the change to be back in the sanctuary around the school year. This week we have, uh, or today, we have an important meeting at the end of the service today. Anyone that is a kids ministry leader, um, Sunday morning, Sunday nights, whatever sense of volunteerism within the kids ministry, we have an important lunch today that you should have received information from Rika about. If you didn't RSVP to that and you're, you can come at this moment, still come. It's important. We'd love for you to be there. If you have an interest in helping in kids ministry but are not currently helping in kids ministry, you're still welcome to come for lunch. There should be plenty of food for, for you to hear more about what our plans are for this school year, how it involves kids ministry. So please, please make it a priority to be there if, if you can, if you have any um, interest in helping with the kids ministry. Uh, then next Sunday is our back to school splash which is um, a back-to-school event, joint youth and kids event. And so we've got the times staggered. We'll have the kids have access to the blow-up slides and water stuff first, and the youth will have access to them second. But you're welcome to stay the whole time. Come the whole time with your family. It's not kids can only be on campus this time and youth only on campus this time. We'd love for all of you to be there. Just know that we're sharing time with the, uh, with the equipment so we don't have the littlest kids and the, and the oldest kids on top of each other, and we want to kind of have some safety there. We also recognize some families with young children will be, will be heading out earlier, and we'll let the youth hang out a little bit uh, later for that. Um, so those are all things in your, in your bulletin that are, that are coming up. The end of the First Corinthians Bible study is tonight, and so please, if you've been a part of that, join us at 6 o'clock tonight. We'll have child care provided. The 21st, we'll also have a congregational meeting where you'll hear, hear about lots of stuff going on in the life and ministry um, of the church, and you'll eat some ice cream um, along the way, too. Uh, one announcement that we'll talk about that Sunday, the 21st, that I'll go ahead and, and make you aware of now. Um, many, most of you know, many of you know, I hope, that um, we've made some transitions in the office, and one of the things that transitioned actually now a couple years ago was Ramona transitioning from full-time to part-time and then we've, we've had a couple of different um, part-time people that have served within the office over the last couple of years, filling gaps here and there. And as of tomorrow, we have a new uh, communications secretary and director that's starting to work in our office, and that is one of our own members, Kate Cransline, is starting to work in our office uh, part-time uh, tomorrow. So if you see her, she's here, find her, thank her for um, serving the church, and you'll start to see some emails and things like that from Ramona and from Kate and some stuff happening on social media online um, that Kate's involved with. So we just wanted to make you aware of that and celebrate that um, transition that God brought us, another talented person to really serve the church and to serve you all well as we communicate well about what God's doing in, in the life and ministry of, um, of our local church here. And so I'm going to ask you now to um, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're really going to plug into 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 today. Um, but, but it's going to take us a minute to get there. And so you know that the last few weeks, um, we've had this series on what we do when we gather. When we gather as a local church, there are certain tasks, there are certain practices that, that we do together. And, and number one, a few weeks ago, we said it's important that we actually gather, that we meet in person because over the last couple of years, the significance of gathering in person as a church has changed. It's faced challenges that we've never faced before. We as a church have live-streamed every service for about five years. But, but in that, we never had as many people live-streaming as we had over the last two. And so we, it really come, becomes necessary now to say live-stream is good, and we want people to be able to connect when they're traveling or have an, have an illness, but the priority is in-person gathering. The last few months, we've had capacity concerns. It is jam-packed in this room right now, and so that's been a limitation. But next week, we're, we're going back to having no capacity concerns. In fact, we'd love to have capacity concerns soon. I told the early service this morning, it was their last chance to um, gather at 915 as an early service, but I don't want to give on that, up on that forever because I'd love it if God would give us the growth to continue to expand what he's doing in us as a local church and expand our reach to, uh, to other people. And so it's not that the first service will never happen again. We love that opportunity, but we think it's so important. And, and we'd love for you to be there next week to celebrate kind of a fresh start. So we talked about gathering. We talked about how the scriptures are the center 
of what we gather around. We read them, we preach them, we reflect on them. We pray when we gather. Corporate prayer is essential. It's something that needs to be a priority within a church. We talked about baptism, how that is public. We talked about child dedication, why that's an important public practice of the church. In the coming weeks, we'll talk about how we, communicate, how we commune with God through the eating of the Lord's Supper. Next week, we'll talk about why we sing together. Because next week, we're going to face a challenge. We're going to have to sing louder because the room got bigger. And so many of us have really enjoyed one aspect that so many people have enjoyed about being in this close space is the singing for the 1030 service in this room has been really fun. You hear other people sing at a level that you didn't hear when you were in the sanctuary. Well, we got to sing louder if we're going to do that when we get back in the big room. But today, we're talking about worship, but we're talking about worship in probably, just to own it, the most uncomfortable area for most of us to talk about. Because we're going to straight up talk about money today. And you know, when churches talk about money, it, it, you, you can find yourself in two different extremes and anywhere in between. There's a lot of churches that really don't like, a lot of pastors that really don't like and are uncomfortable talking about money. And then there's the kind that are really comfortable talking about money. And that makes the rest of us uncomfortable. And so the, the, the reason that we have such, such broad perspective here, we have such strong extremes, is that there's a group of people that talk about money in such a way as a church of, if you want God to bless you, then you must do this. Give this amount, sow a seed, and then God's going to do this, and you need to give this to the church in order for God's blessing to come on you. And some people are manipulative and dishonest in the way they talk about about money and about finances, and they do it in God's name. And because there is so much bad over here on this extreme, it creates this extreme where there's others that are really biblically focused, gospel-minded pastors in churches that are just straight up uncomfortable talking about it because they don't want to be accused of being that guy. Because nobody wants to be that guy because that guy is leading people astray. And we've got to find the right balance of we should actually talk about money. We should talk about it a lot because it's important. But we should talk about money in a biblically balanced way, in a way that hits on what Scripture is actually telling us about giving and worship. You know, one of the things I get asked all the time by people that come into this church as visitors, or sometimes people are here for like a year, and they finally ask the question for the first time, and they're like, when do you guys like pass plates at this church? Like at every church I've ever been to, every week in worship, there's people passing plates around. And you just don't do that here. And actually, for two years, we haven't done it at all. Before that, we did once a month. Every time we did the Lord's Supper, we, took up a, we passed the plate for the Samaritan offering. Just so you guys know, that's coming back as we go back into the sanctuary where we go back to doing communion the way we used to and go back to collecting the Samaritan offering the way we did. We made, that was one of the things that we made an incremental change for COVID, and then when we were moving back, we ended up in here, and everything was, was uh, tighter, and we haven't passed either communion elements or the plates for the offering. So we will go back to passing the plate, but only once a month, and not for the general budget of the church, which is also weird that when we pass a plate at Fellowship Bible Church, we pass a plate so that that money leaves this church. The Samaritan offering is a ministry that is not part of our general budget that goes outside of the church. So then the question gets asked, okay, Fellowship Bible Church, what are you doing? Are you telling us then that giving is not a part of worship? Are you deprioritizing giving as worship? Because when it's incorporated into a worship service, the assumption is that's a part of what we do. It's an essential practice for worship. So when we gather here and we don't do it, are we saying the opposite? That when we gather, it's not a part of worship. That when we gather, it's a lesser priority to us. So what we're doing here today is we're asking the question, is giving an essential thing, an essential practice? And is it really worship if we just do it through an online system, if we do it through giving checks through the office, things like that? And why does it matter so much to us? One key verse for today that we're going to unpack in a lot of different ways. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. 
God loves a cheerful giver. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So this morning, we're going to get to the point of of this subject of giving by unpacking carefully what this verse is telling us and what this verse is not telling us. Because there's a couple of different extremes to interpret this, this important verse as relates to giving. God loves a cheerful giver. Does it mean that we should only give when we're excited? That not reluctantly, under compulsion just means don't give unless you can feel really good and really excited about it. Or does it mean that we should give in some different way? But then also, what do we give towards? What what is the context of this verse, and how are we supposed to apply it within our day-to-day worship? We're going to unpack this verse by going in lots of different directions today. When I come and I'm preaching to you not a a, um, series out of a book of the Bible, but a series that is more topical, it means I jump around the scriptures a lot more. And I'm sorry for that, but that's just what's going to happen today. We're going to go through a lot of scriptures, and we're going to go through it carefully. So we're going to go through the context of what Jesus is telling us and what the Apostle Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 by going a few places first. We're going to build the context for how we approach money as New Covenant believers in Christ by first examining Old Testament teaching, by second examining Jesus' teaching, by third examining the, the context of 2 Corinthians, the book itself, and finally, we're going to bridge that context to go to today. What do we do with this message today? So first, the Old Testament. Old Testament teaching relating to money usually revolves around this word tithing. If you don't know what the word tithing means, it's a word that is used for the money that we give back to God. And you've probably heard tithing, you've probably heard a message on tithing, so you have some sense of what it means. But one one important point, you cannot tithe 8%, 9%, 11%, 12%. You can't tithe 90%. You can't tithe 95%. The word tithing literally means a tenth. So to tithe is to give a tenth. And tithing is a concept that's established in the Old Testament. And it's a concept that's established Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 26, um, Leviticus 27, and in the book of Genesis. You see this teaching about tithing. And the concept of Old Testament tithing is first and foremost based on God's ownership. And we can't get to New Covenant teaching on money without going through what the law establishes in the Old Covenant. Because what happens, here's what happens a lot of times when we talk about money as a church, is you hear somebody bring up these Old Testament command verses and somebody say, well, boy, I'm glad I'm free in Christ and I don't have to listen to those Old Testament commands. But we have to understand that God set a standard in the Old Covenant that is then applied and adapted into New Covenant Christianity. So we cannot completely dismiss the Old Covenant and the Old Testament as sacred scripture for us as New Covenant believers. So, and especially when we see Jesus' teaching here in a minute, we're going to see Jesus make, connects the dots. Jesus affirms the tithing practice of the Old Testament. So number one, tithing is based on God's ownership. What God tells the nation of Israel is out of what I've given to you, you are to give me 10%. And he doesn't say out of what you've earned, out of what you've worked for, out of what you've achieved for yourself. So the the first misconception that is easy for us to have when we approach money and financial resources or any type of resources is when we have, and listen to me carefully here, when we have too strong of a sense of our own ownership over something, because we worked for it, because we deserved it, because we achieved it, we worked really hard for that, then it's going to limit our obedience to God and our worship of God. God has told us, just like he told the nation of Israel, so he tells to us as Christians, what you have, you have because I gave it to you. Everything... Every good and perfect gift comes down from God. And so all that we have is received as a gift from him. That's the first concept that we need to understand about how we approach our resources, whatever resources they are. Uh, Secondly, 
tithing is an act of obedience to God's command. In Deuteronomy 12 and 26, the nation is told to give, um, is motivated and commanded to tithe and to bring their tithes as a sacrifice out of gratitude to God for what God's given. And then in Leviticus, we learn that the purpose of the tithe is they actually bring the tithe, they bring the first fruits of their crops, they, they harvest the first 10% of their fields, and they bring them to the priests and the Levites, and they say, here, this is for you. This is for you so that you don't labor in the fields. This is so that you can, can organize the right worship of God and the teaching of God. That's how it worked in Old Testament Israel. And we adapt those practices into New Covenant Christianity, where the call is actually to give the first tenth, not the last tenth. But it's seen as an act of obedience to God's command, and it's seen as an act of worship. Where to give a part of our resources to God is a way of proclaiming in a way that hurts, in a way that makes a, a big difference in our lives and in our lifestyles, in our quality of life even. Tithing is a way to proclaim God's worth. Because it's easy. It's easy to proclaim God's worth with our mouths. It's easy to say, God, you're worth everything. But real worship involves what Jesus would describe as taking up your cross to follow. Worship is proven through sacrifice, through giving of something. And so tithing is worship in the sense that in tithing, we proclaim God's worth and we proclaim that it is his and he has entrusted to us a, a, a great abundance of resources that's not as much as we want, that sometimes doesn't feel like it's as much as we need, and sometimes it feels like we're living paycheck to paycheck and under constant stress about the money we're receiving. But in that, there's this reminder that right worship means giving back to God a portion of what he has given to us. So those are three principles from, again, Deuteronomy 12, 14, 26, Leviticus 27. And you can go back and do some study on your own. But that's the Old Testament practice of tithing and how it gets established. So now let's go to Jesus. Let's build the context for how we move from Old Testament, Christi or Old Testament Israel to New Testament Christianity. Jesus is the bridge there. So how does Jesus talk about money? Well, first, I'll tell you, Jesus talks about money a lot. And so for all of the churches and Christians that don't like talking about money, I, I, I hate to tell you, I'm sorry, Jesus is one of the people in the scriptures that talks about money the most. Think about the stories of the life of Jesus. Think about how Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, says, Beware practicing your righteousness before men. Jesus literally says, but give and give in secret. Give when people don't know that you're giving. And then we see Jesus and the story of the widow that gives two pennies. And there's this great celebration on Jesus' part of the widow that gives two pennies, whereas everybody else is giving a lot more money, and he says she gave more than anybody. So again, he's building some sort of concept about money. Then you have the story of the rich young ruler who looks so good on the outside, and, and Jesus says, you got one step left, just give everything you have and sell it to the poor. Or sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Then you have the story of Zacchaeus. So many stories about money, what's Jesus getting at? Why does he talk about it so much? So here's the, the key story I want you to see. I spent two years, basically, teaching you from the book of Luke. And the theme verse for the book of Luke at the end of the day is found in chapter 19, verse 10. The theme of Jesus' mission into the world, into Israel, and into the whole world from that point on. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Anybody ask you, why did Jesus come? Luke 19, 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The theme of Jesus' ministry. And where is that sentence? smack dab in the middle of the story about this guy named Zacchaeus. The story goes like this. Jesus is a celebrity in Luke chapter 19. Everybody in the city of Jericho is clamoring to see Jesus and to hear from Jesus. And so people are, are building this big crowd around him. And as Jesus is coming into Jericho, Zacchaeus, this tax collector who is Jewish, but also working for Ro the Roman government in taking and defrauding money of Jews. It's important context. Zacchaeus was a traitor. 
people hated him. Because he was a Jew, he was like the people, but he worked for the occupying empire, and for the occupying empire, he took money from his Jewish countrymen. So he was a traitor. People hated him. People did not trust him. Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree because he wants to see and hear Jesus. He wants to be raised up above the clamor of the crowds that were all around Jesus. Jesus sees him, says, Zacchaeus, we're going to have dinner at your house today. Let's go. People don't like that Zacchaeus is having Jesus to his house. People don't like that Jesus has made the decision to gather with Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus is a bad dude. Why are you going there, Jesus? But in this story of Zacchaeus, all of a sudden, Jesus, in the middle of this impromptu dinner party in Luke 19.9, says, Today salvation has come to this house. And then he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, here's your Bible trivia for the day. What happened before Jesus said that? What was Zacchaeus' words to Jesus that led to Jesus' response? You get it. Today salvation has come to this house. Luke 19.8, the words that Zacchaeus says that allow Jesus, the Son of God, to know that salvation is real in Zacchaeus' heart, that he really is changed. Zacchaeus' words in 19.8 are all about money. Zacchaeus doesn't say, I believe in you, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, I'm going to follow you. No. His words that prove to Jesus he really gets it are, I'm going to pay back. I'm going to give half of my money to the poor. And anyone that I've defrauded, I'm going to pay them back four times what I defrauded them of. Now, let me tell you something. If anyone comes into my office for counseling and says, I've stolen from somebody, and they ask for my advice, and they say, I've stolen from somebody, and this is the amount that I've stolen, what do I need to do to make it right? I wasn't following Jesus, now I'm following Jesus, give me advice, what do I do? I do not give them the advice that Zacchaeus took, because it doesn't seem fair. Zacchaeus said, I took X amount from these people, and I'm going to now give them four times what I paid back or what I took from them. That's injustice. He doesn't need to pay back four times what he stole from somebody, nor is Jesus asking him to pay back four times what he stole from somebody, nor does Jesus say, sell all you have and give to the poor, but Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back what I've stolen, four times what I've stolen, and then I'm going to give half of what's left to the poor. What's going on in that story? Jesus doesn't ask him to do it. Jesus doesn't command him to do it. And yet Zacchaeus is the anti-rich young ruler. The rich young ruler looks great on the outside. Zacchaeus looks really bad on the outside. Everybody hates him. The rich young ruler is obeying everything. Zacchaeus is a, a Roman traitor. The rich young ruler is, is commanded by Jesus, do this one thing, and the rich young ruler can't do it. Jesus is not, command, is not commanding Zacchaeus to do anything Zacchaeus, by the Spirit of God, changing his heart, it wells up in Zacchaeus, I've got to do something. And it was Zacchaeus' idea to pay back four times. It was Zacchaeus' idea to give half of what he had to the poor. And so why am I telling you this story? This is why Jesus talks about money. There's three things on the screen. Jesus connects money to the heart, Jesus connects money to worship, and Jesus connects money to salvation. Do you know why Jesus talks about money? Because what he really wants to talk about is the condition of people's hearts. And the, and the quickest shortcut to get right into the heart of something is to talk about the way somebody spends their money. And Jesus recognizes it. And that's why, guys, listen, I know we're talking about money when we got 9% inflation. I know that there's a lot of economic uncertainty. This is, sorry, I need to shave my beard, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm messing up over here. Um, yeah, I'll take that, David. I'm going to transition and go handheld. So it's now become uncomfortable in the church to talk about money, and it's maybe especially uncomfortable because of the season of time in which we're in. And what I'm telling you is that from Jesus' own example and teaching, it is essential that we have the hard conversations because the way we spend our money reveals the condition of our heart. And money is one of the easiest idols to worship. 
It's one of the easiest idols to lose ourselves in. And so therefore, in order for the church to be worshiping rightly, we need to understand how money is connected to our worship. And so that's why we're here today, to talk about money connecting to the heart, money connecting to our worship. And yes, Luke 19.10 makes it very clear. Money reveals the state of our salvation. Our attitude about money reveals whether or not we have really been transformed by Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying in response to Zacchaeus. Okay, so now we're, we're way into this sermon. We haven't gotten to the point of the, the sermon in 2 Corinthians 8 yet. But we've built the context that, that we don't like talking about money, point one. Uh, money can be really uncomfortable to talk about. But the Old Testament talks about money a lot and commands the nation of Israel to give. Jesus... Uh, affirms what the Old Testament says about money, that people that follow God should give money to God because it belongs to God. And Jesus says your attitude about money reveals your heart and the status of your heart. And now we're prepared to go into 2 Corinthians. And in in 2 Corinthians 8, it seems like Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, takes a surprising turn in his letter. Because all of a sudden, in 2 Corinthians 8, he's like, let me tell you guys about Jerusalem and Macedonia. And so it's, it's necessary to ask the question, what's going on in Jerusalem? Because Corinth is not Jerusalem, and, and Corinth is not in Macedonia. So what's the connection point here? During the time in which Paul was writing these letters to the church at Corinth, wrote 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians, the city of Jerusalem was being persecuted, the whole city, by Rome. And particularly, the Christians within Jerusalem were starving, were facing famine and siege, were, were being punished for following Christ. And so the, the city of Jerusalem, the church in the city, was suffering and suffering extremely. And then Paul, at the end of his first letter, 1 Corinthians 16, he references the financial need that the city of Jerusalem has. And he says, Corinth, I want you to think about that, pray about that. And then in 2 Corinthians, it's time to stop thinking and praying and start giving. And as Paul transitions into talking about what he wants them to do with their financial resources and give some to Jerusalem, he first gives two examples. In 8, 1 through 7, he gives the example of Macedonia. And in 8, 8, 9, he gives the example of Jesus. And this is important. When God asks us to give, He asks us to give from the posture of being a generous God who gives generously to us. He's asking us to give out of what he has already given to us. And he's not even asking us to give a fraction of the great wealth that he has given to us. And we'll see what I mean by that in a second. So um, 2 Corinthians 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, and we'll just read through this story of Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, we see that you excel in this act of grace also. So so what's the example of Macedonia? Uh, Macedonia is a region, not a city. Macedonia is a region where several cities that you might have heard in the Bible are located there. The church of Philippi is in the region of Macedonia. The church of Thessalonica is in the region of Macedonia. And the church of Berea. So Philippi, the letter of Philippians that's in your Bible, was written from Paul to Philippi. First and second Thessalonians, two letters in your Bible, were written from Paul to the church of Thessalonica. Berea shows up in the book of Acts as a church that was particularly helpful because they weighed the scriptures in response to Paul's teaching, and they were very careful to listen and observe what Paul was teaching and compare it to what the Bible actually said. And so these are three strong churches, but Paul describes them powerfully in 2 Corinthians 8 two. 
he describes them as being in their own affliction. He describes, verse 2, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So here's the equation in Macedonia. You have affliction plus extreme poverty plus abundance of joy equals a wealth of generosity. They give and they give generously in response to what? In the context of extreme poverty. In fact, the word for extreme poverty there is actually called, is actually depth of poverty or a pit of poverty. It's like they're stuck in a hole that they can't get themselves out of. And yet while they're in the hole, they give so somebody else doesn't have to be in the deeper hole. They are experiencing their own affliction, but apparently their affliction is not as severe as Jerusalem's affliction. So in a point of need, the churches in Macedonia give to the churches in Jerusalem because the churches in Jerusalem have greater need. But it's motivated by an abundance of joy. And that abundance of joy has to be connected to the second example that Paul gives, verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That, that, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, is our motivation for giving. Because God so loved, he gave. And we can be really uncomfortable with, with God's expectations of us and feel like, why does God want so much of my money? Why does God need me to give my money? Why does the church need me to give my money? Guys, you're missing the point when you say things like that. God does not need your money. God does not need your financial resources, nor does his church. God wants your heart. And the connection point here that is so clear in the life of Jesus, in the teaching of Jesus, is that it's not about the money. When God talks about money, it's never actually about the money. It's about the state of your heart. It's because God wants people to follow him in obedience. And God has demonstrated the greatest act of generosity the world has ever known. Because the son of God, in the state of being rich, became poor, entered into a pit of poverty for us, so that those of us who were in a pit of poverty could be lifted up to become rich. And that's not about physical financial resources. It's about the richness of going from a point of deserving condemnation for our sins to receiving life and life abundantly and, and a sense of an inheritance within a royal, eternal kingdom. That's what we've received from Jesus. And so the, the act of generosity in response to the needs of others is motivated by, by a couple of things here. God owns it all anyway. Out of what God owns, he has given us something. And Jesus has given far more abundantly than he could ever ask us to give back. And within that context, it, it shifts. It shifts the way we think about this. And it shifts the way we think about it practically to a place of kind of approaching these things radically. Because, guys, I'm going to be honest. Macedonia was radical. And, and I'll go back there. I'll go back a couple of verses to show you how radical. In chapter 8. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Again here, let's go back to a practical pastoral counseling example. Let's say somebody that I would describe as being in a place of affliction and in a pit of poverty comes to me and says, I see this need and I want to give some of my money, some of my resources to meet this need. Then I may pastorally look at that person and say, no, 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 no. You have needs of your own. Worry about the needs of your own. Don't give sacrificially to them because then you're going to put yourself at a point of need. And that's the exact conversation that's happening here. Paul is not begging Macedonia to give. Macedonia is begging Paul. Look at it in verse, in verse 4 there. It's like Paul is uncomfortable with the level of generosity and sacrifice the churches of Macedonia are showing. They are giving radically. So you can't then look at, at 2 Corinthians 9, a chapter later, 
and say, well, God loves a cheerful giver. We should only give out of our abundance and only give when we're comfortable and really excited about giving because we have plenty to take care of ourselves. No, somehow we've got to apply within the same uh, section of Scripture, both 8.4 and 9.7, that cheerful giver is giving in a way that it hurts giving in a way that is sacrificial because that's the example of Macedonia and it's the example of Jesus. To go from a place of, in Macedonia, affliction and poverty and still give out of that place. Or in Jesus' example, to give from a place of great abundance and entering into poverty. Both examples of giving in 2 Corinthians 8 end up with the person that gave in a place of poverty, according to Paul here. Whether it's the church in Macedonia or Jesus himself. But then let's go on and let's see what he says to the church at Corinth here, and hopefully this will make a little bit more sense out of it. That, that the, the motivating factor, let me be clear, the motivating factor for Macedonia is not Paul told us to. The motivating factor isn't even Old Testament tithe. The motivating factor is how much Jesus had already given to us. Now when we give today, sometimes there's other motivating factors. And if you've ever given to, um, to a nonprofit or some level of organization, you know that nonprofits, they need money, and so they find ways to come up with different ways of doing fundraisers to get the resources they need with outside motivating factors. So whether it's a pledge drive, whether it's a matching grant, whether it's a give this amount or for any monthly gift, you'll receive this gift, this book, this T-shirt, this whatever, there are different ways that organizations try to motivate you through outside measures to give. I remember when I was a, when I was a kid, this is my full-on dorky story for the day. When I was a kid, I was homeschooled. I was about 9 or 10 years old. I'm not saying anything about homeschoolers being dorky. I'm just saying I was dorky as a homeschooler, okay? So, but when I was dorky kid, I was writing letters to my grandparents, and as I was writing letters to my grandparents, they would send me, like, birthday cards, Christmas cards, Valentine's cards, Easter cards, whatever. And yes, letters are a thing that go in the mail that I used to do in my lifetime. I'm not that young. So I know how to write a letter. But when I would get letters from my grandparents, I would see that what they would have in the letters that would come to me were these little stickers. And I asked my grandmother about it one time because I remember the little stickers that said, Mr. and Mrs. Bob and Carol Milligan. And it was printed, and it had their address, and it looked really cool and official. And I was like eight or nine years old, and I just thought that was cool. Like, I want that. I want a little sticker with my name and address. I want to be Mr. Tim Cheney, 246 Ramblewood Drive, Jackson, Tennessee. Like, that was cool. But on that little sticker, it said American Bible Society. I said, well, what's that? So I asked my grandmother, and she said, well, we gave money to American Bible Society, and they sent us these in the mail. And I was like... I want to give money to the American Bible Society because I want these little stickers that have my name on them. Because then when I, my mom makes me write a card to my grandmother, I don't have to write as much because I don't have to write my name and address. I just put a little sticker. And it looks really official that I'm Mr. Tim Cheney, 246 Ramblewood Drive. You don't care about my home address when I was nine. But so I, I sent a letter when I was a kid. I sent $10 of my own money to American Bible Society in a letter or in, a, in an envelope. I don't even... I think I wrote a letter. I don't know. I may have put something else in the envelope besides $10, but I got the address, mailed it to American Bible Society, and sure enough, they sent me stickers with, with my name and address. And it was not giving for the right reasons. It was, it was kind of motivated by just being a dorky little kid and wanting stickers with my name on them. But the amazing thing is that actually, over the years, I gave to the American Bible Society for a number of years after that, in part then motivated by guilt, because I gave for the wrong reason the first time. <laughs> and then I thought, well, I really should give because I want Bibles to be in the hands of people that don't have Bibles. That's a really good reason. I don't care about stickers anymore. So as I got older, I, I continued to give a little bit more. But see, there's all these different ways of rewarding people for giving that, that that is a part of the way we live now. Ministries, nonprofits, churches try to find new and different ways to motivate people to give. And the Bible's motivation for giving is not like that at all. It's look what Jesus gave. Look what Jesus gave. God owns it. Give back some of what God gave to you. 
and you will never outgive God and outgive Jesus. And then, oh, by the way, there is a reward. It's not a, it's not a pack of stickers, but there's an eternal reward for those that live lives of faithfulness to God's calling, and the way we utilize our resources is a part of that eternal reward that we receive. God owns it all. God gives his son. We won't outgive God, nor can we ever, and this is vital, nor can we ever possess something that God actually needs. God will accomplish his kingdom purposes without our financial resources, without our, our time resources, without our volunteerism. The reason we give is to be in right relationship with him, to act in our own obedience, not because God is desperate, not even because the church is going to close its doors if we don't, but because this is God's desire for our hearts and for us to be walking in obedience. So what specifically then is the call to Corinth and how do we bridge that concept into our lives? Look at verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 8. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but to also desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So a couple principles here out of what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. Be ready to give. He's actually asking them to give now a year later after he told them he was going to ask them to give. He says that in verse 10. You've been thinking about this for a year, so now you're ready. Let's give sacrificially. But as he says give, he says give proportionately. He says some of you will need to give more than others of you, and that's an okay thing. And that's when we go back to Jesus' story of the widow who gave an extreme amount because though it was only two pennies, she gave what she had. And those that gave more monetarily than she did gave less from an obedience and a spiritual perspective because they gave out of abundance a little bit and she gave out of poverty a lot. And so, yeah, there are different capacities for giving within the church in Corinth and that same is true for the church in Dalton, Georgia that different people give different amounts according to what you have. Now, he says, also, give what you don't need. And let's be careful about this. Because, as I said, Macedonia is in a pit of poverty before giving. But in the pit of poverty, they recognize they have more than they need. So we need to recognize that when God says, give out of the abundance that you have, it's not a human, worldly definition of abundance. Because if you ask us what abundance is in the human flesh, then we can define that a lot of different ways. And it's never, our financial resources are never actually going to be enough. You're never going to feel like you're 100% secure financially and you have all of your needs met and you have no concerns financially. In fact, I think sometimes God gives us financial concerns specifically so that we would learn to walk in faith. That sometimes God allows us to live with a little bit of, of stress or anxiety or question of how the needs are going to be met day to day because he is asking his people to walk by faith and not by sight. And so when the bank account doesn't have as much as you want it to have, you recognize it has what I need it to have. And I then need to change my definition of what is need for me and for my family. So he's not saying also that Jerusalem's going to pay back Corinth. He says, give out of your abundance to their lack, and then you will receive when you have a season of lack out of somebody else's abundance. He's actually saying, don't store up for a rainy day all of your resources, but rather give what you have stored up for a rainy day to those that are in need so that if some unforeseeable thing that you're, that you're preparing for happens, you will be provided for by God through his church. Now, I'm not saying, guys, I'm not saying don't have savings. I'm not saying give everything. In, in fact, the hardest part about talking about money is that it's so complicated and everybody's so different. 
And therefore, what faithfulness looks like in your financial management is different for, for every one of our households. And so therefore, the goal is to walk reasonably, faithfully, led by the Spirit of God, learning biblical principles as we are today, but at the end of the day, giving generously enough to where in our cheerful giving, there's actually real sacrifice too. That, it, that when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he doesn't say, if you're cheerful about it, if you want to do it, if you have time to do it. He says, sacrifice, follow me. And so when we give financially, sometimes it hurts, and we don't actually know if we're obeying and walking in faith unless it hurts, unless there's some level of question of, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to, to provide for my family if I give this to God? He says, the quantity of your giving is determined by the quality of your heart transformation, by the quality of the degree to which God has changed you and shifted you around the example of Jesus. So if your heart has been radically changed, give a radical amount. If your heart has been slightly changed, then maybe that's why some of us give a slight amount. And that's not me. Listen, I'm in a position of not knowing what anybody gives except for my own family. So it's not me casting judgment over anybody in the church. It's me saying that we need to do the work of allowing the Spirit of God into our own hearts to discern what's going on in our own hearts. And if the only motivation we have is to give a slight amount, then maybe we don't really get the extreme amount to which God has given us and transformed us. Because radical transformation leads to radical generosity. And so we'll wrap it up this way, bridging the context to today. 2 Corinthians 9-7 is the verse I started out with. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What I cannot do here today is to force you to give reluctantly or under compulsion. But what the goal here is to do today is to leave you in the state of being so radically transformed and radically inflamed by love and, and obedience to God that you would give cheerfully in a way that is sacrificial. Because God loves a cheerful giver in 2 Corinthians 9-7 comes in the same context as 2 Corinthians 8-2, which says the abundance of joy which fueled the Macedonian gift took place in poverty and affliction. You can be a cheerful giver in a state of poverty and affliction just like Macedonia. And so those of us that wouldn't consider ourselves in poverty or affliction should that much more be driven by the Spirit of God to give. So here's how we bridge the context to today. We need to, as a family of God, seek to see the finances that God entrusts us with through God's eyes. Seek to see finances as He describes them in His Word and as He calls them to do. And let me, let me make a, a, a comment about this. The, the reason that people get uncomfortable with churches talking about money is that when we do it, sometimes we just say, we want you to give, we want you to give, we want you to give. But then we give no practical instruction in how to actually help you live responsibly with the rest of it. God does not just care about 10% of the money he entrusts you with. He, entrusts you with. he cares about 100% of it. And I do, do believe that the Old Testament law becomes a New Testament command that we should, as Christians, give 10% to his church. But God also deeply cares about the other 90. And the other 90 is where we then need to use some wisdom and need some biblical training on that. And it's more than I can do in this sermon here today because, again, it becomes so practically applied to each and everyone's, every family's different situation. So I'll say that one of our desires as a church is to do more of that for you and for us as a church to be walking in more faithfulness, especially given the rocky um, economic times we live in. People are struggling, and we know that. And so then we need to face how to, how to live wisely from Scripture. So in September, we're starting the Sunday evening. Um, Larry Winter is going to be leading it for us, and we're starting a Sunday evening seminar on how we, how we approach money from God's perspective and how we manage money carefully and wisely. And it's not just a Sunday night seminar saying, give to the church, give to the church, give to the church. It's a Sunday night seminar that says, here's how you practically, responsibly think about savings, think about how much you're spending in different categories of your budget, develop a budget, and steward the resources God has given you wisely. 
We want to help people do that in, in our church and in the community. That needs to be a mission of the church to help people utilize any resources God entrusts them with wisely. So as we seek to see finances through God's eyes, that's what I mean. We need better biblical training on that. And then we seek to give in response to him, recognizing his ownership, his generosity, and his worth. That we are giving back to him what he already has given to us. That we are mimicking a piece of the generosity Jesus has shown. And we are declaring God's worth in our worship through giving. Now, we don't pass the plates here in worship every week, but we ask you to be disciplined in your worship, to worship, and I believe you can worship through, um, through monthly bank drafts and through online giving and that sort of stuff. Being disciplined and structured in the way you worship through giving is a good thing. But also, as you give, the third point on here, learn about and ask questions about how the money that you are giving to God's kingdom is actually practically used. It's okay to ask that question of any organization you give to and any church that you give to. And we want to be a church that, that is open about that, that is open about how we utilize those resources. And we want to be clear that we believe that the resources of the church are not best spent on buildings and, and technology and, and salaries and all this stuff that happens inside the doors. Some of that happens. We, we spend money on that. But in the general budget of Fellowship Bible Church, we always spend over 20% on overseas missions. The Samaritan Fund, as I said, the only time we take up an offering is when the money goes 100% out of this church. The, the other unique thing about Fellowship Bible Church is that we, we believe that it's not appropriate and it's not helpful for churches to take out loans in order to finance the ministry that God's doing. If God's going to call you to a ministry, he's going to provide it without taking out a loan in order to do it. And so we live different as a church. We, we live in a, in a different philosophy than many other churches. And I'm not saying that that's the wrong thing for other churches to do, but those are our convictions. And we want to be open about that so that you know how the money you give to Christ's work here is actually utilized. And fourthly on this list, give what he asks, which I do believe he asks us to give a tenth unto him. And then I'm going to ask you to give more. And I'm just not talking about money now. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your time in the mornings when you want to be focusing on other things and you have time to focus on him and his word. I'm talking about your time on the weekends to give to the church. I'm talking about your time in the evenings to give to the community. I'm talking about utilizing whatever resources, time, money, expertise, skill that he has given you. Give it to him in real generosity and do it in a way that it actually causes you to pause and say, am I giving too much? Because if you don't have that moment of pausing and asking if you're giving too much, you're probably not giving enough. Because obedience to God is stretching. It's walking by faith. And as the band comes up, I'm going to ask you to imagine. Imagine what life would be like if the church of Jesus Christ actually gave with a Macedonian level of generosity to the work of the kingdom, to what God is doing through churches, through, through missions organizations, through community organizations. How could we reshape a community based on radical generosity. We spend so much time thinking about how dark the world looks and, and how difficult everything is without imagining the future that could happen if we actually took a deeper step, all of us together. I'm not talking about one person in this room. I'm saying all of us together as a community. We gather together to go deeper. And part of the going deeper is more time, more sacrifice, more resources for his kingdom. Imagine what God could do with just a little bit more of us, with a little bit more of your heart, with a little bit more of your time. What would God do through you? And how might it excite you for the kingdom of God in all eternity and also what God is doing in his kingdom on this earth? What if we gave it all? And what if we were really walking by faith every day? I'm going to ask you to stand we're going to sing and worship. And I'm going to ask you to ask the Spirit of God, what are you holding back? What is it that you have left to give to His kingdom?
fortunes fail and loss arrives, my soul is weak, but Christ is strong. Father, may we, in this moment, be a people that collectively, together, lay it all before you. And Father, may you burn in our hearts right now and give us practical steps of what we can do to live more faithfully and greater obedience. Father, I pray for those that may be feeling overwhelmed of saying, I can't can't afford that level of radical giving. I can't afford radical obedience right now. I've got so many things going on in my life. Father, give each of us practical starting points. May we not be overwhelmed by the difficulty of all that you call us to, but in the difficulty of all that you've called us to, may we be overwhelmed by the grace you give us to accomplish it. So, Father, give us wisdom 
in the next step and then the next. So that even when we're not found completely faithful on day one, we will grow and be conformed into the image of your son over time. Give us the next step in obedience, Father. And Father, give us wisdom when those in our midst are struggling with what to do about financial questions, what to do in questions of obedience and giving. Father, give us wisdom to be there, to bear one another's burdens, to answer questions, give good guidance, and to walk through the challenges of life together. We praise you, Father, and we thank you for your rich grace to us. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.